I love the writings of Kathleen Norris. In her book, Amazing Grace, she tells the scariest story about the Bible she has ever heard. Her friend Arlo was the grandson of dirt-poor immigrants. The granddad had homesteaded in South Dakota, living in a sawed house and barely eking out a living from the land. But the grandsons, Arlo and his brothers, they built up Grandpa's ranch, and Arlo became single-minded about making money. Arlo made a lot of money, and rarely did Arlo spend any money, except that Arlo and everyone in his family always drove a brand new car. Arlo was now facing terminal cancer and undergoing difficult chemotherapy, and his money couldn't help him much. It was about then that he shared this story with his friend Kathleen. It seems that when Arlo and his wife first got married, the grandfather, a deeply religious man, had given them as a wedding present a beautiful white leather-bound Bible with the couple's name engraved in gold on the front. Arlo and his wife thought it was a lovely gift, a very expensive gift. They treasured it, and they kept it in the original box, stored in the closet in their bedroom, tipped up on its side. But every time they ran into Grandpa, he would say, what did you think of the Bible? Oh, we loved it. And, and they made sure that they had written him a thank you note expressing their gratitude. But Grandpa kept bringing it up. And so eventually, Arlo was kind of curious and he went and he pulled that Bible out of the box and he discovered that Grandpa had put a $20 bill at the front page of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and that Bible had $1,300 in it and Grandpa knew they would never find it. And Arlo was so frustrated because he said that was a lot of money in those days, and if I had just invested it, I would have a lot more money today. So the Bible is something that we talk about a lot, and we revere it, but sometimes we miss the treasure inside of it. Sometimes we have good reasons for leaving that Bible in the box. We think of it as a rigid rule book, and who needs one more rule? Or we think of it as a crystal clear path for life, and maybe that's not the path we choose. But once you open the Bible, you find that it's filled with inconsistencies. On one page, it preaches peace and nonviolence, and on the next page, it describes God's very own people at war with one another, battling for, to conquer land. Many times, we hold questions that the Bible simply cannot answer. The Bible was written before the scientific worldview emerged, so it has nothing to say on some serious topics like bioethics and climate change. And actually, once you dive into the Bible, it can be frustrating because sometimes the Bible asks more questions of us than it gives answers to us. Mark Twain once said about the Bible that it's like a drugstore. In it, you can find both poison and cure. Today, I want to look very briefly at 10 stories of the Bible. I'm intentionally leaving out the stories that Mike and I will cover in the upcoming 
sermon series called Greatest Hits of the Bible. But these 10 stories for today will span several thousand years, and I want you to listen to see if you can note what each of these stories has in common, what similarities in the stories. And so go with me, please, on a 12-minute race through the entire Bible. What do you hear as a repeating theme? Set your watch. First, Genesis. God creates Adam and Eve and plops them down into the lush, beautiful Garden of Eden and tells them, eat freely from anything here except do not eat of this one tree or you will die. And you know what they do. They eat the forbidden fruit, but they don't die. God simply moves them to a new home just outside of the garden, just outside the gates, and God makes for them some clothing because they now know that they are naked, and now they till the soil and they raise a family. Towards the end of Genesis, we read about Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery because they are so jealous of dad's affection for the younger brother. Joseph ends up in the court of Pharaoh because Joseph has developed this reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And so the Pharaoh begins to rely on Joseph, and he entrusts his entire kingdom into Joseph's hands, appointing Joseph to be the governor. When famine threatens their very survival, Joseph is at the helm. On the day that his brothers show up and bow down before him, begging for food to sustain the family, those brothers have no idea that the little brother they left for dead is now ruling over them on the throne. And Joseph forgives his brothers, and he brings the entire family into safety in Egypt. And he looks back on that entire family debacle, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The third story that unfolds happens after Joseph's family settles down and takes up residence in the land of Egypt. But a new Pharaoh ascends to the throne, and this Pharaoh knows nothing of Joseph and his family. So the new Pharaoh treats God's people like dirt, enslaving them, calling them illegal aliens, forcing them to make bricks. The Egyptian taskmasters oppress them. <coughs> the rich grow richer and the poor grow poorer. And God says, I have observed the misery of my people. I see that they're suffering. And God raises up a reluctant Moses to confront the evil Pharaoh with these bold words, let my people go. And so Moses leads the people of God out of bondage across the parted waters of the Red Sea into the promised land. It's such a bold exit, and we call this the Exodus. But on the way to a better life, they wander around for a long time, 40 years in the wilderness, and one of my favorite scenes in all of scripture is this one in the desert 
when they begin complaining about their newfound freedom and they say, what are we going to eat? At least we had food back there in Egypt, daily rations as slaves. And I can kind of picture God chuckling about their grumbling of their newfound freedom. And God rains manna from heaven. And they have enough food to eat each day. So what do you hear so far? Are you starting to notice any common threads in these key stories? Fast forward again a few hundred years, and there's another little family living in Bethlehem, a father, a mother, and two sons. They're having trouble raising their crops, another famine, so they move across the border into a foreign land seeking some economic opportunity. While they're there, the two sons come of age, and they take wives, wives who are not of their nationality or of their religion. And then the two sons and the father die, leaving the mother-in-law and the two daughters-in-law destitute. One of those daughters-in-law is named Ruth, and Ruth chooses family loyalty over her national identity, and she follows her mother-in-law back home into Israel, and she marries another relative, and they have a son, and that mother, Ruth, becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, and so the family line of God's people continues. The fifth story that is key to the entire Bible is the story of the exile. Now it's about 500 years before the time of Jesus. At this point, God's people have built downtown the new Sprint Arena, and the Kaufman Performing Arts Center has just opened, and there's this beautiful church on Ward Parkway that has just refurbished the exterior. Things are going quite well. And then they are invaded by a foreign power, and many are thrown out of the country and sent to raise their families elsewhere. And the temple in Jerusalem, which was the hub and the heart of their cultural, their national identity, everything to them, not just their faith, but everything to them is destroyed. It lies in ruins. And they begin wondering, did God do this to us because we failed to take care of the poor or because we failed to attend to our spiritual lives. And in the midst of their devastation, a prophet named Jeremiah comes to the podium and says to them, I think I'll plant a vineyard. A vineyard in the midst of this? Jeremiah voices hope that God is still with them, that God who originally gave them stone tablets filled with laws is now coming to write that law of love upon their hearts. And now fast forward another 500 years to a little village where a teenage girl named Mary is betrothed to a boy named Joseph. And they are both surprised when they find out that they are expecting a child. As they pull out the baby naming books, an angel intervenes and says, no, no, no. You will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus is born, 
not in a palace to rule the earth with a sword, but in a stable to gently lead a flock. Something about this Jesus is controversial from the very beginning. Herod tries to kill him while he's still a toddler, and the folks in his hometown synagogue try to run him out of town after his first sermon. His etiquette seems suspect. He touches the untouchables. His judgment seems lacking. He hangs out with prostitutes. Though he claims to fulfill God's law, he always seems to be breaking it, healing on the Sabbath and dining with sinners. Ask him a question and Jesus will almost always answer you back with another question. Try to trap him with a trick question and you can't because Jesus honors God's spirit in a way that no one previously thought was humanly possible. He lived in ways that broke all the rules. He loved everyone, even his enemies. After they nailed him to a cross and laid him in a tomb, everyone thought, game over. But then some women discovered that the tomb was empty and some men who were walking along the road had a stranger appear to them, and when they broke the bread and shared the wine with the stranger, they realized that this indeed was the risen Christ in their midst. He was not contained in a tomb, but set free to live in the lives of the people, and they rose up in a movement, and they called themselves the most audacious name, Little Christs, or Christian and the church was born. Do you see any common themes? Repeating from those early stories of creation over and over again throughout the centuries, does God form a pattern on their hearts? The two last stories. One is about a man named Paul, a faithful Jew engaged in persecuting Christians. He travels by horse on the road to Damascus when he is blinded by a light, falls to the ground, and the scales fall from his eyes, and he converts to become a follower of Jesus. He turns to God, saying, Here am I. He dedicates the remainder of his life to traveling around the region, sharing the good news of God's love. The church grows like wildfire, and despite the dangers and persecutions of claiming Christ, instead of the emperor as Lord, the church grows. And a generation later, the final book of the Bible is written. It's written in code. And it was written in code so that those who were persecuting the Christians wouldn't catch on. And so it's odd for you and I to read it in modern times because it has such fantastical symbolic language, but at the end, it speaks plainly. And instead of saying, this is how we all get to heaven, the Bible ends by saying, God will make God's home among people. God will bring heaven down here. And one day we will live together in peace and in harmony with God and with one another, because that is what God has intended from the beginning of all creation. I hope by now each of you are beginning to piece together in your mind some themes that echo from Genesis to Revelation. And you know, if you hear a different theme than I do, that's okay. 
Carl Barth said that reading the Bible is like looking out the window and seeing a bunch of folks in the street, and they're all shading their eyes and looking up and seeing something toward the sky that we cannot see because we are inside here under a roof, and all we can tell is that they are exciting and pointing to something that we cannot see. What I see when I look out the window is this. When it looks like all is lost, God saves. Just when they have turned their backs on God, the Holy One rushes to bring them back into the fold. A surprise ending, always a surprise ending. The people are continually surprised by God's love, for God finds a way out of no way. God forgives. The story of the Bible is that no matter what happens, God is for them. God is with them. As the passage from Deuteronomy says, God gives them the law so that it will go well with them because God is for them. And as the passage from Romans says, nothing can ever separate them from God for God is with them. But the biggest surprise is something else. Let me put it to you in a story, a story that I heard recently on the Moth podcast. A taxi driver was in Dublin late one night dropping off some passengers. As he pulled off, he noticed that there was a car on the side of the road idling, and it didn't appear that anyone was in the car, and so he pulled over and got out and looked, and the car was idling, and there was a hose attached to the exhaust pipe that was running inside the car. And he ran over and he opened the car door and he pulled out a 20-year-old young man who was still breathing, still had a pulse, but had passed out. He put the man in an ambulance and then he noticed the man's cell phone there on the floorboard of the car. And he realized that the man was in the middle of sending a text to his father. So he called the father and said, meet your son at the hospital. The next day, the taxi driver got a, a text from the father. He said, my son is alive. He's going home from the hospital tomorrow. He would like to thank you. Can I bring him by to see you? The taxi driver said, please don't. He didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to risk getting a call a few months down the road that the man had succeeded, and he didn't want to upset the young man for having thwarted his plan. That was November. Just before Christmas, the taxi driver got a text from the father again. He said, I, I know you don't want us to contact you, but thank you for what you did. I just want you to know all is well. Merry Christmas. Every year for four years, just before Christmas, he got the same text until the fifth year. And at Christmas, his wife said, did you get the text? No, he said, I didn't. He was worried. All that time, he had not wanted to get involved. He did not want to receive the text. And now he wanted more than ever to get that message. Days passed. New Year's came. And a couple of days after the New Year's, he got a text Belated Merry Christmas. We were out of the country and I couldn't text. We were with my son celebrating. He just got engaged. 
Merry Christmas. Every year now, he gets the text, all is well, Merry Christmas. The surprise, you see, it was not that the father loved, but that the man loved. When have you been surprised by that same divine love welling up in you?